0: You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafiti and Eurosimos. All
1: right, guys, welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. I'm Joel Rafiti. I've got my co-host Yurasimov with me. Today we have the return of Simon Esler. We spoke to him initially on episode 119, talking about transgenderism and fifth generation warfare. And he's returned to join us today talking about how we can develop emotional intelligence and embodiment through the emphasis and the escalation of fifth generation warfare that is the monster and is being highlighted, particularly through the lens of the current conflict that we're seeing in the Middle East. Right before we bring Simon on, uh, just thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. You know, we started this podcast with very humble origins and we really appreciate the growth trajectory that we've had and for every old ear and new ear that is currently here um listening to what we have to share and what our guests um have to come on and speak on um we're really grateful for that so thank you so much if you feel called on whatever platform you're listening um we'd appreciate you hitting that follow button whether it's spotify or apple podcasts just so you can get these episodes uh, delivered to you weekly and uh, yeah please enjoy this episode all right, everyone, welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. Uh, another double episode week. Uh, today we have Simon Esler returning. He last joined us on episode 119 of discussing transgenderism and fifth generation warfare uh, premised around his new film, Cut, Daughters of the West. Um, Simon Esler fights for free thought with every tool he has. After building a free-thinking 14,000-member think tank on Facebook, Simon was censored across social media for challenging official narratives. In response, he pivoted his focus to providing content to freedom-oriented streaming platforms such as Rise.tv and Dauntless Dialogue, refining his skills as a researcher, content creator, and filmmaker within private communities. Now combining all of his skills and passions, Simon's on a mission to win the ongoing war against free thought and human liberty. His extensive portfolio of content, ranging from in-depth documentaries to science fiction comedies, can be found at simonesler.com. Simon, welcome back to Hear for the Truth.
2: Thank you kindly. I'm really, really glad to be here, to be honest.
1: Man, we're, we're really glad to have you here. And you um, immediately came to mind for us, especially as you know, we find ourselves in these in the midst of, I guess you know, online turmoil again in a in a very profound way, it definitely seems more interesting than it has in the past. Um, you wrote an awesome article, um, "Empiricism: a War on the Mind," um, and yeah, I wanted to just get you on to discuss your thoughts on this unfolding situation and how I guess fifth generation warfare applies once again in what we're seeing on social media at the moment.
2: Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot, and actually, I'm I'm developing a, a mini like a mini course that people are going to be be able to take, a free one that I'll be dropping in a week or so. Um, cool. That is really going to walk people through this because, you know, one of the things that we want to first assess, especially with the, the current escalations, is that with fifth-generation warfare, what we're dealing with is a cognitive battlefield, right? The majority of it is cognitive. So even when you have kinetic warfare, right? So you have this, like, you know, all this violence in the Middle East, for example, even when there's an escalation in that kind of kinetic warfare, um, the times we live in, it is still primarily about cognitive warfare. It's still primarily about who's controlling the narrative, how you're, um, managing the collective groupthink, uh, in your favor. And so there is, um, a huge amount of effort on the part of, uh, every, every different group that is at war to try to control the narrative for those people, um, that, that are watching this from the outside, right? And I think that's really important to assess because if we're going to look at this from the perspective of of this new battlefield, right, that um, it's a cognitive battlefield, so very much has to do with our cognition, then in much the way that you would, you know, uh, go into trench warfare and you would assess the actual field on which you're going to go to war, right? So you want to know where there are trees, where there are hills. You want to understand the natural terrain, what the earth has produced in that area, so that you can assess your strategies and decide where am I going to form entrenchments? You know, where am I going to set up so that I'm strategically prepared to go against my enemy? So, in much the same way, we want to assess the cognitive battlefield, which means we want to look at what is there in terms of nature, right? What is already present outside of the warfare being waged? You know, what is, what does the cognitive battlefield look like? And one of the things I've come to realize is that there's a lot going on in that natural cognitive terrain that we are deeply unaware of, but plays a huge part in, in what is currently going on, especially in terms of us trying to seek truth in the digital domain primarily. One of the interesting things that has happened to human cognition um, in the West specifically um is that we have become entrenched in very much in the left hemisphere of the brain um and this really has to do with things like the industrial revolution so when the industrial revolution you know uh, came about this was very much about grasping the material world manipulating the material world uh you know understanding things mechanically looking at things through this reductionist scientific lens and so it was that those are all very left hemisphere Things. The left hemisphere is all about grasping and obtaining clear things it can understand that have clear definitions. The left hemisphere is um, where we primarily use language. And so defining things into words and concepts that are clear and defined, um, that that create a certain amount of certainty. That's all left hemisphere thinking. So in the industrial revolution, what happened was as a collective, we became very much entrenched in this left hemisphere way of viewing the world, that it's all about materialism, the material realm. And you can even see this in both communism and capitalism. Both of those are actually just different expressions of manipulating the material realm. Um, because like Marx, he was very much about material determinism. It was all about whoever controls the production of materials is actually controlling the direction of society. And this is why Marx believed... That, you know, this proletariat needed to be awakened with this new consciousness to take back control of material production. Whereas capitalism is, you know, it's a different way of looking at the role of the material realm. So we very much became focused on this. But one of the tricky things that seems to have happened is that in this process of the industrial revolution becoming about manipulating the material realm and, and becoming the main force in designing the modern world around us. So now, you know, we're, we're here. We have the screen in front of us. Everything around us, you know, is lines. It's all sort of metallic surfaces. It's very like unnatural. This is actually the left hemisphere's way of viewing reality manifest in front of us. And this creates a kind of feedback loop so that the left hemisphere's view of reality is constantly reaffirmed by just living in the modern world. And this has become a strangely invisible process to us. What is lost is the right hemisphere way of experiencing reality, which really has to do with um, instead of explicit meaning and sort of rigid reductionist ways of seeing the world. It's more, um, implicit meaning. It's looking at, you know, the, the meaning in between, looking at doubt and contradiction and uncertainty. Um, this is where we explore spiritual concepts and experiences that that don't quite fit into the linguistic realm. It's why a lot of people really enjoy poetry because it points to something other than. It gives us a sense of reality that can't quite be captured and that you can find this essence of meaning in between. These are right hemisphere ways of experiencing the world. This is the cognitive terrain on which we find ourselves. If you are in the West right now, you are in a collective where you are encouraged to seek out, to grab meaning and understanding in forms of certainty that are very rigid, very reductionist, very scientific, very materialist. And this is at the expense of being able to explore multiple different possibilities, contradictions, doubt, uncertainty. And so there are a lot of forms of pressure ongoing in the human experience right now, where we don't realize the extent to which we're being pushed into states of certainty because of this collective entrenchment. And when you put that in the context of fifth generation warfare, and the fact that it is focused on manipulating cognition, it's very important that we understand here's the terrain. We're all already sort of entrenched in this one particular materialist reductionist view of the world. And then you have fifth generation warfare that preys upon... Our desire for certainty. And one of the things that's really important to understand in all of this is, is the way we use narratives. So humans have always wanted to use narrative and story to process reality. You know, it's at the heart of the human experience. It's why the hero's journey archetype is embedded in all human stories throughout history. We have always sought narrative to process reality. But when we moved into this left hemisphere entrenchment, Uh, what happened was the narratives just became kind of like very simple machines where they only share um, explicit meaning that's very simple, very certain. It gives that left hemisphere something it can grab onto and define and hold. Um, And so we, we see that all the narratives that are being waged right now in this fifth generation warfare, they're very seductive because as we Wade through the chaos and as things escalate, that desire for certainty and clarity is very strong in us. And so it opens us up to fifth generation warfare, to this narrative warfare that is ongoing in a very powerful way. Um, and that's, you know, that's just in the broad picture without getting into other things like, you know, tribal mentalities and what social cluster you're a part of and the pressure to stay in that social cluster and, to join the narrative of that social cluster. So, you know, this is something I've been researching a lot and looking at a lot, and I think, you know, this is really, really important for people to understand. The pressure on you to be certain about what is going on, especially through the digital medium, is immense, and it needs to be talked about.
0: Yeah, okay, Great intro.
2: <laughs> I've literally just, like, writing about this all yeah. day, so you caught me. It's yeah. all on I- the
0: cusp. I, I did want to bring this up, actually. And I know I know we could probably talk about it later, but you're familiar with human design. I am. Yeah, yes. same here. And yeah. I've been looking at a lot of things through the human design lens. I made a post recently about just the difference, um, just in terms of like the emotional centers being defined versus undefined. And you, know, you have people that are reacting from their extreme waves and then everyone else taking in that conditioning and amplifying it. And so when we have these major crises, you know, there isn't there isn't the space where people take to go. Hey, let me wait out my wave, or let me tune in and go like, what's what's playing on me on an emotional level. Not to mention from the the ajna from the mind, where there's this need. The conditioning is to be certain. You know, like yes. that's the conditioning influence. Like I I have to be certain. You know, so all it's it's interesting to view things from that place and obviously have a dialogue with people to understand what the fuck I'm talking about because a lot of people
2: don't. But you know, I I have actually been thinking about the human design lens. Um, in terms of all of this, a lot, and there, there are parts of human design that can be migrated, you know, into a, a broader sort of conceptual way of seeing the world. Even if you don't know about human design, one of the primary things that it explains to us is that emotional intelligence, uh, the nature of it is that emotions, because they're wave-like in their structure, they create meaning through time. So emotional intelligence never creates an instant sort of meaning and understanding. That's not how emotional intelligence works. You have to move through the wave of an emotion for it to create the requisite meaning for your emotional intelligence to then gather you know, um, you know, what is available to you from that experience. And, and so I think that's that's a very helpful way for people to, to be looking at things right now um, is that if if you are being pressured into decision-making in the middle of emotional waves, then you are being robbed of your emotional intelligence because you're not being allowed to generate meaning over time. And I think when we look at what's going on right now, you know, you look at just the ritual of, of doom scrolling, you know, 4K footage of bloody war, which is something that so many people are doing right now. Um, what kind of waves, emotional waves are being generated in, in those individual people, but also as a collective? And then what kind of decision making is occurring in the middle of these massive waves? Um, I really think people need to understand emotional intelligence from this lens. And, and it's important because sometimes we get caught up in thinking where it's like, you know, don't use your emotions, use your logic and your rational thinking. Right. Whereas, um, you know, that can be helpful that that can be more helpful maybe for the in the moment stuff. I think Mm -hmm. the mind is better at assessing like, meaning in the moment like that, right? Like in a more immediate sense to a certain extent. Um, but we really, really need our emotional intelligence right now. But you're entirely right. From the human design perspective, if you're not waiting for emotional waves to end, um, then you are so open to being manipulated. And that ties into fifth-generation warfare. You know, if you tie together fifth-generation warfare and human design, and you think of people being mid wave. And then them being attacked with narrative warfare mid-wave, and they don't have this awareness, they're extremely susceptible to what's being, you know, waged at that time.
1: Yeah, and also being open to unnecessarily escalating, you know. Well, what comes yes. to mind for me is that Peterson Sweet on the 8th or ninth or whatever it was saying, Netanyahu, give him hell. I wonder yes. what kind of emotional wave that was on that, you know, would have triggered all his, all the people he influences as well.
2: Yeah, and I think from what I know about him in, from a human design lens, I'm pretty sure Jordan Peterson has a defined mind. And mm-hmm, I think he's I think so. a, ma- a manifester, right? So Jordan Peterson is always going to think like Jordan Peterson. You know, that's no one's going to sway his thinking. When he comes to new ways of seeing the world, it's entirely through his own efforts. It's not through his mind being influenced by others. I'm pretty sure that's where he's coming from. So, you know, Jordan Peterson is going to Jordan Peterson. But th- th- him making that tweet, Yeah. Uh, That's a powerful, intense thing to say. I haven't watched his follow-up video. He did put up a video clarifying his position. So I'll admit that I haven't seen that. Um, But, you know, given the the violence that has ensued since that tweet. Yeah. um, And just the sheer number of children that have died. um, It really, uh, it's creepy. I think the whole thing is very creepy. And I've watched... A lot of people that I felt were more free minded, um, become very caught up in these narratives, very certain. I would say is the thing that I've seen most powerfully that, you know, even good friends of mine are so incredibly certain about what's going on. Yeah. And I find that shocking. Um, I, I, I am so comfortable in my uncertainty in all of this. I'm happy to wait. I'm happy to be honest about the fog of war. I'm I not going to pretend, right? Like, And again, this is a right hemisphere thing to rest. It's not just uncertainty, but it's to be able to be comfortable with uncertainty, comfortable with doubt, to be able to experience contradictions and to look at like narratives that contradict each other and cognize those different narratives. These are the kinds of skills we need to be developing to navigate things that are only going to get more complicated. We have to be able to get ready for that.
1: Yeah. To to, to confirm, yeah, Jordan Peterson, five wine emotional manifesto, left angle cross of confrontation.
2: There we go. Yes, I looked it up go. at the
0: same time, too. they're They're saying that he they're not sure about exact time, so he could be five one, five, two, or six, two, or whatever, but still emotional manifestor too, and the mind connected to the throat. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I totally yeah. hear you. But again, it's yeah. fascinating to consider this.
2: yes, it's very helpful. And I think you know, in the human design lens as well, we are moving more towards right hemisphere mm-hmm. you know, right hem- the the right hemisphere ways of being and seeing and experiencing. But I'm pretty sure that through the human design lens also, this is the left hemisphere's last hurrah. So where there's like a big uptick in all of these things that are shifting away. So you can see this, you know, the the left hemisphere is all because it's all about, you know, seeing things mechanistically, this is also how the left hemisphere um helps us see the body. So when we want to see our body through the left hemisphere, it's what helps us see it as parts. You know, as organs and different aspects of this machine that are, you know, functioning together. Whereas the right hemisphere is about embodiment. It's about mm-hmm. that, in, that, that innate embodiment of being embodied, of experiencing the world from the position of embodiment, which is, you know, all your senses at the same time, plus like intuition and that sort of implicit meaning that tends to to find us in all these different ways through synchronicity and spiritual experiences. And, you know, you can see that very clearly. You know, of course, last time I was on, we talked uh, a lot about the the trans issue, but it's a good expression of that of of seeing the body as just parts. Mm-hmm. And you can just swap parts. Um, that's an extremely left hemisphere way of viewing the body and the self and the world. Um, so you know, I just I really want people to understand, first of all, just the massive influence of the culture that they're living in right now. That if you were born into this Western culture, then you were extremely conditioned to view the world from a left hemisphere, um, you know, way of viewing the world, and to not know that you're doing that, right? To not understand that you've been boxed into this way of experiencing the world. That's really important. And then I think just when we consider The impact of technology and social media on people, uh, that just, that amplifies all of that like tenfold in my opinion. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to also just say too, even you talk about embodiment in our bodies and you know, the solar plexus, the emotional center rules the nervous system, you know, and, and being in touch on that subtle level with your body, what's going on on a sensation level you know, that is, I think on a lot of ways, the essence of embodiment, really being connected to yourself in that deep way and knowing what's happening and knowing like, oh, there's something that comes at you, a stimuli, where, how, why are you triggered? What's happening in your body that gives rise to, to emotion and thought forms and, and to be able to have capacity within your nervous system, because, you know, we're, we're traumatized, like human beings are traumatized and all of us are to the degree that we are some more than others. And so like, what's, what's the, how do we move forward? Again, I, I bring it back to human design as we're moving towards you know this this shift in twenty twenty seven. It's like emotional intelligence is going to be super important as we continue to move forward. And like if we're not doing work on our nervous systems and getting to know ourselves on these deeper, more embodied level, you know we're going to continue to run into this, and we're continue going to be manipulated, and we're going to continue to have unnecessary drama in our lives.
2: I think embodiment. Embodiment is such, it's such a big deal on so many levels because we're being disembodied from so many different angles in so many different ways, but it's also like, it's kind of a deceptively simple thing. Like, first of all, you know, in Fifth Generation Warfare, in um, in The Citizen's Guide for, to Fifth Generation Warfare, the, the book that was put out by um, General Michael Flynn and Sergeant Boone Cutler, they talk about this. They talk about dominating the physical domain as opposed to the digital domain. And that one of the ways you cut through all the psychological operations and all the fifth generation warfare is by dominating your physical domain. And this has to do with in-body, in in-person networking, being with family, being with community. Um, and I would take that even further. I think that because we are so conditioned by our online lives, when we are in an interaction with someone in person, we are sometimes, uh, we're so conditioned by being on, on social media, for example, that we're kind of interacting with that person, like we're in our DMs with them. And it's <laughs> like, you know, it's like there's there's like the dot, 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 you know, while uh, someone's someone's like getting ready to say something and you're sort of thinking about what you're going to say next. Um, you know, we're conditioned to be like that. Whereas I think one of the most powerful ways we can be with another person is listening with our our body. And mm-hmm. I think this, this to me, it comes back to a lot of the spiritual practices that have really helped me, you know, um, like Taoist practices and Buddhist practices, where one of the most sacred roles the mind can play is its capacity to watch the body. And the ability of the mind to watch the body respond and to to quietly watch the body, this is something, you know, I really, I really think about this in terms of warfare. Like when I'm offline, when I'm with my family, I'm often... I'm trying to. I'm seeking embodiment with my children, not by analyzing my children and thinking about them while I'm with them. I'm watching my body respond to my children, and I and, and the actual physical sensations that being in their aura gives me, and playing with them gives me, um, and you know what is my body doing in the presence of of my children and I, I really seek to, to use my mind to observe that process rather than using some kind of internal dialogue. That to me is uh, a form of embodiment that's a very powerful medicine uh, to, to counteract what we are put through in the disembodiment ritual that that is social media, that is just constant online work. And I, I really want to encourage people, this is something I'm focusing on in this course that I'm releasing um, in about a week, um, is to use the mind to watch the body when you're in the presence of others, and to be with people with your body in that way. Um, it's a very powerful practice. And from the Taoist lens, you know, they look at it in terms of the eyes and the ears. You know there's a practice called the inner smile, and this has to do with learning to use the eyes to smile into your body. And it's a very beautiful practice because what they teach you is that uh, you notice that when you genuinely smile, you can feel it in your eyes. And we can see this too. When someone smiles at us, like you see their smile in their eyes, their eyes change. And this can be turned inwards. You know, our eyes actually have the capacity. To look into our bodies and to watch feelings in our bodies in the same way that our eyes can watch an object in space. Our eyes can watch a feeling in the body. They have this capacity. It's very, very beautiful. And so, um, to me, the practice has been about using the eyes to look into the body. And actually, there's a process of genuinely turning your vision inwards. You know, this is a real actual practice you can engage in. And the inner smile, I just always thought was so beautiful because I think. In the same way that your smile can be felt in your eyes, um, all the other things that you're experiencing, if you're dysregulated and stressed, um, imagine what kind of gaze are you engaged in as you are looking into your vehicle? Or like, what kind of gaze are you casting upon that inner space if you're really stressed? You know, what are your eyes doing? What What happens when you can see when someone's angry, of course, right? You see the anger in their eyes as well. There's a certain amount of our gaze that is always going inwards, but But when we genuinely take it in there, uh, you know, through meditation and just through intentional work, I've really found that getting a sense of what the quality of my inner gaze is, it gives me a a very healthy way to relate. And that has really helped me build upon this practice of watching my body and being in the presence of others and, and that fifth generation warfare practice of dominating the physical domain. To try to stay grounded considering how much time i'm you know spending online and on social media
0: yeah what, what do you think keeps people like them disembodied like what what are the main reasons like that people are disconnected from their bodies i know you talked about some of it but i'd love to kind of go into this even more
2: it's really seductive because like there's a certain simplicity to it um the world is constantly trying to hand us You know, meaning on a platter, really, really sort of simple, hollow, empty forms of meaning, but they're, they're very easy to consume and they give us that kind of certainty. And so you can stay disembodied. You can stay dysregulated. Um, as long as, as really like as you sort of choose to or unconsciously choose to, there's a certain seduction to that because, um, you know, it means that you don't have to go through the uncomfortable work of figuring out what you have stored in your body, right? Like, we, we are somatic beings. Any Any trauma that we have, for example, that we really haven't worked through is stored in the body. And I think this is one of the challenges of being a, a disembodied modern sort of Western person is that the initial work of embodiment is really, really uncomfortable. It is not a nice experience because Uh you've got like a whole library of nonsense in your body that you've got to sort through, like a whole bunch of really ugly, weird shit that you're keeping in there. And that, so the process of becoming embodied, you know, there's a certain amount of confrontation that is required. um, And Uh, You know, that's really easy to avoid. Every single aspect of our modern life is essentially designed to help us avoid that process, to make it very easy to avoid that process. Um, And, you know, so I think people are, they're easily seduced into that. And we like, for example, when you look at social media, you know, you have this, this big explosion of violence in the Middle East, and then you go onto social media and people are like, here's an exact, perfect, clear narrative of how to interpret that people are like, yep, now I'm certain what's going on. And like that feeling for people, it's so, it's so much easier than getting into the body in that particular circumstance. Because, you know, when we look at that, for example, we're not there, you know, we are not in Gaza. We're not in Israel. Like we're, our bodies are not there. Mm -hmm. And this is part of what I was focusing on in my Substack article. Um, it's really hard to acknowledge how little truth we can actually gather through the internet. Uh, that's kind of a painful thing for people to realize because people spend so much time frantically researching the truth. And uh, it's not that it can't be uncovered, Like there's lots of great research to be done, but your ultimate truth-seeking tool is the body. Like your body, like the, what you can experience physically with your body I really believe empiricism to be, you know, a core truth. I believe that our greatest access to truth is through our physical vehicles and what they avail us to. Um, it's really hard to accept that when something this intense and emotional is going on, uh, because our bodies don't have access to what's really going on there. And we only have this disembodied version of the truth that we have to just rest in doubt that you just have to accept that you don't know what's going on, even if you are a devout jewish person and this means a lot to you and you feel like the bad guys have to be defeated like that that you know there's some validity to that experience at the same time if you're just somewhere else in the world you know living in new york city and you're not there and the only access you have to this is scrolling social media um then you just have to accept a certain amount of doubt and uncertainty and i think that's another reason why it's very alluring for people to stay disembodied people just like they don't accept uncertainty. They don't yeah. accept doubt. It's very uncomfortable. They seek to escape it. But um I think we have to practice not knowing. I it's an actual practice. And I think in the same way that we store trauma in our bodies, we store knowings. We store knowings in our bodies, these forms of certainty about things like these when we grab, when that left hemisphere grabs onto something in, you know, let's say through social media, and then we we hold that certainty in our bodies as a kind of tension. Um, And I think that's because it's, um, it's a construct. It's not a real embodied truth. Like, you know, I've been looking at this in terms of principles. I think when you become a principled person, principles are things that you embody. They're not mental exercises. You're not constantly, constantly doing mental gymnastics to sustain your principles. I think over time through life experience, they become embodied. I think there are forms of truth and knowledge that when they become embodied, it's not a form of tension, right? There's a relaxation to it. There's a a knowing within the body that is different. Whereas um, certainty that is grasped through the mind, especially through the digital domain, there's a certain kind of dysregulation that comes with that because we are deeply, deeply designed to experience truth and develop the self and our context of the self in the world through the body and through our relationship with physical place. Like This is deep in our neurology. We are tied to place. And when you think about the impact of the news, taking one particular war from the other side of the earth, not all the other wars, because there are other ones, but the news says, no, here's this war, and I'm going to take this war across the world, and then I'm going to put that news, that war into your nervous system. And I'm going to show you this particular narrative of that war, and then I'm going to cut to a hokey story about a water skiing squirrel. And good night. And it's like that's a, like that's a that's really weird. It's weird in comparison to the way that we developed as beings um, with with place and body and embodiment has very much to do with our physical place. You know, there are. There are some birds, for example, that bond with their nest, like, like biomechanically, they bond with their nest as much as they bond with their mother. Like that's how intense place is for us. And so the sort of dis- displacement that we experience, just the basics of social media and news, importing, importing decontextualized events. And bringing them into our space and then trying to use our nervous system to process these things that have been imported from a different context into this space. That already is a kind of strange disembodiment ritual that again, I, I really believe this is a process that is mainly invisible to most people. And so you just don't realize how weird it is, what's going on. And when you look at the evolution of consumer technology, I would say that, you know, this, this conflict with Israel and Palestine, This to me is really the first time when there's been so much like 4K footage of the goriest parts of the war coming straight into my life uh, that so many people in the war have a smartphone, they're shooting the dying children and the severed limbs and they're just like, you know, that, that the accessibility of high quality cameras, you know, gets released. Like, you know, iPhone does this They do their big ritual of like the newest iPhone with the most beautiful camera, but no one thinks about what does that mean then for things like war and the internet, where it means now, yeah, we have all this great technology, but now it means that uh, there is going to be this uh, migration of all the most horrifying things around the world as well. What does that mean for our nervous systems? What does that mean for embodiment? Uh, These are all kind of like invisible changes in just like modern society on top of which we have to struggle with all this like intentional warfare
0: yeah i want to go back to something oh, are you frozen or am i frozen
2: no, no i do look frozen
0: oh. <laughs> but <laughs> you should, you should no, look like good
1: though bro
0: it. you look good i like it you got like your blue steel on
1: you might you might want to turn it your is blue steel. you might turn the camera off and on quickly if you want okay um go your response
0: Oh, yeah. I wanted to say just because you brought it up a little earlier about like a person being in the place versus a person not being there. But do you also think it's true that someone who's actually there and they're they're under this trauma and they're, they're being impacted in this certain way that, I mean, it's understandable that if a person that's in warfare or in a war zone, that it might be more difficult for them to, you know, have the space. To maybe be a little bit more detached to pursue, you know, some objectivity. Like, yes, your body, you know, being in bodies is important. But like everything we said at the beginning about being emotionally defined, like your your behavior and your thinking and what you're sharing, you know, can be extremely biased uh, because you're under, you know, you're you're dealing with such uh trauma. Whereas someone who's not there, you know, may have the time and the space and the detachment to to explore to do some research and to see things in in a in a different light whereas someone who is in a particular country and receiving like the specific news from that place on top of being in a war zone they may not be able to see things from a certain place and so then arguments happen from that place do you know what i'm trying to say
2: yeah and i think like let's take the context of what's going on right um there's generations of trauma that have led to this this conflict in the Middle East. Like you have generations, generations, generations of trauma. So um, you could say arguably that, that n- none of that trauma is really being healed, right? Uh, so in terms of the people who are in that zone, uh, they first have to contend with what is trapped inside their body uh, in terms of what they've lived in their lives. Then on top of that, they have what whatever intergenerational trauma is ongoing in their, their family line. Um, so that has to be contended with. Um, and I think, you know, my mind always wants to go to the people that have maintained a perspective that is that broad and that far-reaching through time. Um, when we look at, you know, uh, these families who are uh, intending to reorder the world, to establish this new world order, I think there is some knowledge and awareness of, the kind of quagmires that get created when you just traumatize different groups and pit them against each other. You traumatize them for numerous generations, then you leave them without the tools to heal that trauma. And then you watch them go at each other. Um I think there is some awareness here uh from these, you know, the the larger social engineering perspective that is creating these kinds of quagmires where There may be a form of war, let's say, uh, that is intractable, that there is no, there is no good, clear, peaceful way out because there are forms of historical momentum and trauma at play that actually have to play themselves out now. There's, they've been pigeonholed into this, this one way of, of being dealt with. Uh, I, I think that's a lot of what's going on. You know, I saw. I saw the, you know, you guys did a podcast recently where, um, I can't remember his name, but your guest was talking about the history of a lot of this and how the British promised both sides land, right? That there was like um, both the Palestinian people and the Jewish people were both promised land by the British and that sort of all sides were played by this British colonialist, uh, you know, influence. These are the kinds of situations where, you um, You know, to sort of bring it back to the human design lens, how much choice do we have in terms of the mechanics playing out here? Uh, you know, that, that human design notion of no choice of so much of this is playing out mechanistically that we have less choice than we think and that the place where we have the most choice is awareness. Um, I don't know how to get more awareness into, into a situation like this, like in the actual war zone, in those places where now, all this trauma is reaching a crescendo. I don't know, I don't know if awareness can be cultivated in those spaces. Um, it's almost like those are spaces that are like anti-awareness. Um, because, you know, because it's so much trauma, it's so much disembodiment, it's so much rage and hatred. And then on top of, the, on top of that, everyone's being manipulated. Um, it's really like everything you need to cultivate awareness, which is really the space where I believe we have the most choice and the most expression everything you need to to cultivate awareness has been obliterated in those spaces. Um, Well, I mean, maybe every,
1: every, I mean, developing awareness is very difficult when survival is the norm, you know, like I think back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. like they're, they're in survival. How is, how is anything possible? How is awareness, self-esteem, whatever it might be, you're contending with just living um, and surviving day to day. Um, And just like, the discussion we we're previously having about you know just getting all this information through social media, I don't think that's to say that people shouldn't go through a truth discovery process. But the thing is, we need to attune ourselves to going and doing proper research, reading a book around the issue, reading a long form article, watching a watching a long form video, and then uh, then your body will definitely play a role. You know, then your body will give you some information about what you're reading, about how much truth um is coming through, how much resonance is coming through, um in terms of the content. Um, and, uh, you know, so to me, this is part of the reason why all this is happening and why this is coming up because there's a, a murky blurry truth, which is wanting to make itself known as well. You know,
0: now a short break from the episode,
1: to be honest, there's never been a time where community has been more valuable than now. And so we have our membership community, friends of the truth. Which we honestly believe are some of the best, most amazing, unique human beings um, anywhere on the internet that you can come and connect with. Come introduce yourself. Come be surrounded by you know strong, integrous, vulnerable, emotionally intelligent uh, like minds to to navigate this this life with. It's pretty much low cost thirty nine dollars a month. You get six live calls a month. You know we we bring on previous podcast guests to come and drop wisdom and we have live conversations with our members and these podcast guests, live teachings, astrology, human design, nervous system, German new medicine. Uh, So basically, if you're interested in staying in the cutting edge and you enjoy what we have to offer and you want to connect with us directly, Friends of the Truth is the place for that. So you could hit the link in the show notes or you can head directly to friendsofthetruth.co to learn more and sign up.
2: Back to the episode. You know, the it makes me think of the new age conceptualization of manifestation, you know, and, and synchronicity and all that, and how much of that was cleared up for me uh, when I got into human design. Because in human design, if you have a generator aura, you are, pull, you are pulling things to yourself, mm-hmm. right? You have this magnetic aura. So for the other aura types, that's not necessarily the case, but the majority of the human race is generators, right? It's most The human race is mostly generators. What
0: are you, by the way? We never talked about this on our last episode because so it didn't oh, come up.
2: yeah. I'm a, I'm a manifesting generator. Profile? 1-4.
0: Oh, cool. Very unique. Yeah. 5-1, emotional G here. Joel's a 6-2, uh, emotional G. Anyways, continue.
2: Are
1: you emotional, Simon? Yes, emotional. Yeah, cool. Yes. Uh,
2: which is, you know, of course, why I'm so interested in... Uh-huh. The emotional intelligence piece, of course, Just live here. Um, yeah, it's very, very interesting. So you know, and so I, of course, having a generator aura, you know, I have had that experience of you know, I I magnetize things to me, and it's sort of like what you said, like when you go down one of these rabbit holes, you know, when you actually go through that that ritual, you know, very, a lot of it is online. You go through these online rabbit holes, and that's totally fine. Like it really helped me. I I can admit to that, and I think what happened was, um the parts, when I would go through these deep dives, the parts of that that were correct for my awakening, I pulled them to myself. And we've all had this, the sort of moments of synchronicity when you go down that rabbit hole and then suddenly other things that help build the pieces of that puzzle start appearing in your life elsewhere. And this like web of meaning Comes forward, but you feel it with your body, like those moments of synchronicity when, like, your body really starts humming, when, like, there's like a deeper truth that comes because you're like, whoa, 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 mm-hmm. whoa. That's this thing that I just went deep into the other day. And now it's like manifest, let's say, in my life, in my community or in a relationship, someone that I'm meeting in person brings it up. And I have this like interesting moment of, oh my God, I was just researching this. Yeah, like the body is, it's, a, it's this beautiful truth seeking. Mechanism. And so it will, to me, this has been my direct experience, it will confirm for me. It will attract, my aura will attract to me that which is correct for my awakening. And I think trusting that process um, is really important. And I think that's why uh, going into those rabbit holes and that, you know, that ritual of awakening and uncovering all the information that's been occulted, you know, cuz we're in this information war and there's so much occulted information and it's so many lies of omission. That part is really really important. Um but I think it's about the gap. It's the gap between going through that ritual of, you know, some of those deeper rabbit holes and figuring out that there's a lot of lies going on and then the time when your body confirms it later on. It's that gap that I think People struggle with, that's the time of uncertainty where it's like, yeah, what you just went that, that rabbit hole you went through, really crazy information, potentially a lot of good stuff, but don't go straight to certainty. Allow your body to confirm it for you over time. Trust in that process so that you can embody that. Like for me, this has been very true. Like I found out about the new world order like a decade ago, at least, but it was very, very mental when I first found out about it and it has been through living my life and starting a family right like when i found out about it i didn't have a family and then starting a family and then watching that my family was a target in this war and being able to observe that and live that uh you know that for me has been very powerful because it allowed me to confirm to embody to understand the war that i'm in with my body so that i'm not speaking constantly from um, this disembodied state of of conspiracies of mental conspiracies, but rather having really sought for myself, you know, whether or not this is true, and then seeing it in my community, you know, noticing COVID was very very obvious, seeing the way that it impacted families, watching how other families processed what was going on, you know, all of this it's become very clear and manifest in my community, and even, you know, I went to the Million March for Children protest um, here in Toronto. And um, again, this was a very powerful experience in terms of dominating the physical domain. I've been doing a lot of research and um, you know, creating some content on how what we're faced, a lot of what we're faced with, with gender ideology and critical race theory, this is of course neo-Marxism, but there's a lot of pushback and confusion about that. A lot of people saying that has nothing to do with Marx, you've never read Marx, it has to do with capitalism, gender ideology has nothing to do with Marxism. So what was really powerful is I went to the One Million March for Children, and I actually first went to the counter-protest. And there, the counter protest was being led by active neo Marxists who were holding signs of Karl Marx. They were chanting trans rights are workers' rights. So they were actively merging the ideologies in front of me. There was a woman standing with a bag that said transgender Marxism. So, you know, I got to go and see these people, watch what they were saying, meet them in my community, get into aura with them and gather that information. That was very powerful for me because it allowed me to build that embodied foundation of what is going on. And I think this is a really important practice. Yes, research this war that's going on, like research. You have these, these globalist entities and they're attempting to destroy nation states so that they can reorder the world and create this centralized global power. That's true. But how is this war manifest in your community specifically? And that you have to do embodied work. You have to find. Where this war is manifest in your community. I'm going to give another really clear example. You know, in researching the impact of gender ideology on girls and doing the research for my film Cut, I of course saw some of the worst of the worst. I saw some of the like the nastiest drag shows with like the most perverted men in scantily clad clothes being very sexual with children. You know, I saw the worst of that. But then when I went and looked at how that was manifest in my community, um, I don't agree with this going on. I don't agree with Drag Time Story Hour, but it really was just sort of clownish men in dresses, just reading regular books to kids. It wasn't sexual. And so if I allowed my nervous system to get plugged in to that really outrageous version of of what's going on and seeing the very hypersexual drag queens, and then I take that Mentally created, uh, you know, experience that I got through the digital dom- domain, and then I go and I try to stop this in my community. Say, stop sexualizing kids. But then I show up at this drag time story hour where it's not really sexual. Then I do become this purveyor of misinformation, disinformation, and I mm-hmm. do a disservice to my community. So the manifestation of this war in your community has to be assessed by you, and not uh, you can't use the digital domain to assess how this war is manifest in your community.
1: Yeah, well, it's similar in the ways that you know. I feel like the social engineers try to collectivize our thinking into conflating the most extreme individuals and groups of, of of either side and painting the entire group with that brush. You know, whether now people believe you know like Hamas represents all Palestinians or whether like the most extreme Zionist IDF supporters you know represents all of all all Jews. Like it's simply it's simply not the case. You know, but. What in watching social media, I'm seeing how easy it is for people to revert to that collectivist, tribal way of thinking when there's a narrative that supports their preconditioned biases.
2: Yeah, yeah, they want what matches what they're feeling. This yeah. is a really, it's a really tricky trap. And and you're right, the social engineers know how to create narratives, uh, and 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 you know psychological operations that match the trauma that they have ensured that people have, like the trans issue is a very good, you know, it's a very good example of this. You you traumatize an entire or you traumatize generations of girls, but you make sure that girls are growing up relatively disembodied and traumatized. You know, teenage girls are the most likely to be sexual assault sexually assaulted. They're the most likely to be sex trafficked, uh, you know, you you look at that, and you look at the the fact that there is this Hyper focus of sexual trauma. Let's say specifically on teenage girls. Right, that's where like the majority of it happens. And then you say, Do you want to escape your body and just not have a girl's body? Maybe you don't feel like being in this body. Maybe you want to have a boy's body. You give them. You know, they're they're having a feeling of wanting to be disembodied. A teenage girl who's surrounded by the culture that that we have now, um, it's very tempting to be disembodied. And so they they say, Look, here's this pronoun. Um, you know, doesn't that feel better? Doesn't it feel like, yeah? See, you're not, you're not a, a girl. You're not a woman. That thing that is so likely to be traumatized, that's abused, that's looked at hypersexually. Doesn't it feel better to be this other thing? And of course, that that is a real valid feeling in that moment for them. It does feel good because it does actually match the feeling of escape that they were seeking. You know, this is a very powerful form of programming. And when we look at what's going on, you know, like you said, with everyone wanting. To simplify, to seek out these simple narratives of what's going on with Israel and Palestine. It's so, um, I mean, it's almost cartoonish, some of the narratives that people are caught in. There's sort of these like good guy, bad guy cartoon scenarios. And really, like, it's so much more nuanced. And I think some of it is just nuanced because the human struggle is nuanced and we rarely want to confront how nuanced it is. And then some of it, is intentionally foggy because there is there are attempts to create this sort of fifth generation fog of war. You know that like there's a lot to get caught between with all that's going on. I know that you have a lot of people on the right who are very pro-Israel who are saying, "Hey, look, Soros is paying to amplify all these pro-Palestine, um, you know, uh, protests," and so that that brings up for people all the other times Soros has invested in things. And Soros is like overall position in the war. And then so it's like, okay, well, then the Soros side is the bad side then, you know, and the, the people who want to like, they want to lock into that. Uh, and then you get into the other side where you have all sorts of incredible corruption in the Israeli government. You know, if you just like, just go back to COVID even, like Israel was the one of the most draconian COVID nations in the world. It was terrifying. There's people right now just trying to fight against the Israeli government to acknowledge the number of vaccine injuries that are ongoing yeah. there. I mean, the the, the yeah. amnesia is crazy.
0: Netanyahu literally on an, in a video interview admitted that he was using his people as
1: like lab rats, like they're experimenting. That's right. We're, that we're was gonna, one of the
2: deals they made with Pfizer, yeah. I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. we're going to become Pfizer's lab. Yeah. It's, yeah. 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 So, like-
2: I mean- why, why would you trust this person now all of a sudden then? why why, why would he be the, the, the hero of the story? But again, we want those narratives. That's part, you know, we try to process the world in that way and we just have to be aware of the fact that we seek out those narratives and that, um, you know, what about narratives that are, that are more metaphorical and symbolic? What about interpreting the world in those other ways right now? what <laughs> you know, I've been thinking about this like, what would what would it be like if the news, if the news broadcast was like metaphorical and poetic, and like the anchor sat down and like he gave you an update about what was going on with Israel and Palestine, but just through like poetry and metaphor, uh, you know? I, I give, us,
1: give us give us an example.
2: <laughs> send
1: uh, send your uh, right brain to anchor anchor
2: man. Generations of haunted trauma have emerged in the Middle East, with the ghosts of the past boring with future trauma and technology overwhelming the population in ways they can barely comprehend as they sink into a sea of disinformation and narratives.
1: Right. I would love there we go. it. I would love that. You're I hired. That. Yeah. You're hired. I'm creating a whole
2: I'm creating a
0: whole new global news network and right. Uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> the, the right brain news network
1: yeah, yeah you know what the interesting thing about this particular issue you know in the context of generation warfare is like we don't even know what the mainstream narrative is right now but it's not clear i know crazy.
2: i, I, I can't, i'm kind of enjoying it like i i'm kind of enjoying the fact that it's forcing everyone to really really dig deep in their inner authority here like you look at the yeah. human design perspective Again, it's like we have these big rituals. Like COVID was this big awakening ritual, but obviously it wasn't enough because I see a lot of people who are right back to being entrenched in the way a lot of people were during COVID. So what is this collective ritual? I think it's a push for deeper inner authority. Well,
0: it's, it's interesting too, because you have people, let's say, that identify as being Jewish. So for many of them, they're media aligned with Israel, but they consider themselves like more radical or more leftists. So then they're seeing all these leftists And they were like supporting BLM and all this stuff. And they're seeing all these people that are supporting Palestine. So they're having this mindfuck. And then their algorithm for the last however many years isn't showing them all the conservatives that are supporting Israel. So then they assume everyone is against them and chanting death to the Jews when that's not the case. And it's like this weird interplay of like social media narratives and ideologies. And it's wild to witness.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. You're right. Because the way that social media was designed to create echo chambers isn't functioning the same now it's a completely different phenomenon and i mean i i don't know how we're going to come up the other side of this but i I think think one
1: of the biggest distinctions which needs to be made clear and which people really need to understand is that there's a clear distinction between the state of israel and jewish people most jewish people don't live inside israel and most jewish people their values don't align with the state of israel but in our minds we hear israel we're the state of Israel, and we automatically assume all Jews fit within this value system when that is
2: a lie. And also the Jewish identity, like there is some confusion there because like the Jewish identity is religious and it's ethnicity and like it's it's a lot of different things. It's not just one, like, um, you know, there's people that convert to Judaism, then there's people that are Jewish bloodlines, and then there's people that are... Uh, you know, devoutly religious. And then there's people that uh, just, you know, wear the Jewish identity from a more uh, secular perspective. So that the, even just the Jewish identity, it has a lot of different forms of expression, you know, socioculturally speaking. And so it's not even an easy thing to pin down in and of itself. And then uh, and there's that, just like, you know, there's this, this secular person that doesn't really give a fuck, but sure, I'm a Jew, I was born as like, but it's like, yeah, you know. Exactly. They have friends, I have so many friends like that yeah. who are like, they're not even posting about it. They don't want to even be involved, even though like they're from a Jewish family. Like it's just not on their radar because it's just, you know, they don't have that. But then, you know, there's other things ongoing too. Like I know that there's you know, there's the can't remember what the program is called where they 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 pay for Jewish youth to come to Israel and they go through what is that called? Birthright? Yeah, the birthright program. You know, that's an interesting factor as well, because from what I've heard, um, a lot of that is focused on a certain amount of re-traumatization in terms of like, you know, looking back at the Holocaust and the plight of the Jewish people. And so some people have come forward saying that some of the birthright, and it is not my opinion. I'm just sharing what some others have shared with me. And I've, you know, I'm mm-hmm. I'm open but uncertain, of course, mm-hmm. uh, that there's some attempt to continuously re-traumatize the younger generations of Jewish people to sort of hold this idea of the Jewish. Um, you know, yeah. victim mentality based on what had happened, so that that can then lead to you know programming later on. You know, some people that take that view as well. There's so many ways to look at this and to to recognize that no matter what, we are dealing with all different forms of groupthink and tribalism and all sorts of different factions and expressions of that. And you know, that's a really, really messy thing in and of itself. Um, and so I'm 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 getting a little more clear on on what's going on, but I'm still resting in quite a bit of uncertainty and just watching. And I just I really want people to recognize that you don't have to be certain about what's going on. You do not. You do yeah. not have to be certain. Like, notice the pressure of that, and and relax. You know, in from a human design perspective, if you have that that openajna, you know, there is that pressure, like you were saying, the pressure of certainty. Um, you know, I, I I have um I have an undefined root you know so i i get the root yeah. pressure all the time um and i have an open head so i really have like the top bottom pressure all the time <laughs> so like same i here, get man. pressure same here right so it's like the pressure is real like learning being wise about pressure is i think a really important thing and i've really come to see that i have had the, the literal experience of being on instagram and i'll have someone on the israeli side um angrily messaging me being like, I cannot believe you shared that in your stories. I am on the verge of unfollowing you. I thought you were an intelligent person at the exact same time. I saw someone on the Palestine side saying the exact same thing, (laughs) like literally threatening to unfollow me. I can't because, you know, I've shared things that are relatively on both sides because I'm just, you know, I'm not going to really entrench myself into one side. I won't, I won't do that. Um, And so it was really interesting to see that manifestation of like, the emotionally charged individuals on both sides, both threatening to unfollow me, both saying you shouldn't be sharing this. You should only be sharing what reaffirms my narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a fascinating thing to watch. And I understand it deeply. I have a lot of compassion. I, I really do get it because, know. you know, if we're talking about embodiment, um, some people, they they do have family there. They're on the phone with family. You know, it's not just social media for them. Yeah. They've You know, they've maybe been to Israel. They have some embodied experience they've had with that portion of the earth. And so some of it is relatively embodied to an extent. Um So it, it's tricky. It is tricky. And so I, I really feel for both sides, it's so much suffering. And I think you really have to be careful, be careful, especially if this is an emotional issue for you, be careful using social media to sort out what is going on, because there's on top of everything we've just discussed, there's also just artificial intelligence and video technology to create fake videos like there's that yeah. as well which
1: like yeah. it's hard to know can i just make something explicit like threatening to unfollow is like the weakest <laughs> fucking form of emotional blackmail <laughs> ever like we do not give a fuck all right yeah, I, know.
2: <laughs> yeah. I know it's <laughs> really wild and this is in like a private message where, like, <laughs> <laughs> if you want i guess like i you know, it's the
0: most amusing thing to witness on social media is the like unfollow I'm unfollowing you now.
2: As if it's yeah, like how that.
0: about you how about you just unfollow? You don't need to mention <laughs> it, you just do it, you know? I love you know. Yeah. But it's it, it, it. it's it's wild, man. You know, like you know, I, I was attacked like like scorched earth just for us posting the episode with with Gavin, you know. Yeah. And yeah. like trying to look into the historical elements of this, you know, in terms of the creation of it. But if you have a certain ideology and you're there in Israel dealing with this and have friends of friends who've been kidnapped, like I understand, you know the pain and the suffering. And if you have a very, very specific belief about what's happening, like even bringing this conversation up and exploring this is, you know, highly, highly triggering. So,
2: but you know, how much of that pain and suffering is coming from you going on to Instagram and watching the footage of children <clears throat> dying, like? That's still, even if you're personally connected, that is a deeply traumatic ritual to be engaged in, right? That, like that,
1: dude. This is what I'm saying. Like, we got banned from TikTok recently, you know, just for our simple reels. But it's like TikTok has no issue with the goriest parts of yeah. what's going on yes. being going going viral, right? So yeah. it's like this is in like in terms of the overarching agenda. Like it serves the social engineers to have us continually re-traumatized yeah. by consuming this information. And yes. Yeah.
2: Meanwhile,
0: our reels are pretty benign and we <laughs> <Yeah. get> <laughs> <lost> <laughs> the flags and then we get completely deleted.
2: I I got deleted. I got I got deleted twice and then I just got kicked off so I couldn't control my account. So my account is now on there, but uh I can't get to it. You know, it actually reminds me and as an interesting example of entrenchment of cognitive entrenchment right this is a phenomenon that I'm I'm really studying up on because I think there's all these different forms of cognitive entrenchment now we're on the cognitive battlefield and you can get entrenched cognitively in many different ways um I don't know if you guys ever saw but I did this video during covid and it was I made this character of uh you know a, of a guy who just keeps getting vaccinated and keeps getting covid um, but he the only symptom of covid he ever gets is diarrhea <laughs> so he's just <laughs> he's really really upset and so I made this sketch, this like comedy sketch of this guy who's so upset about people who won't mask and won't follow the protocols because he believes that that he keeps getting diarrhea because of them. and So he just keeps getting vaccinated and he's very upset. So I did this sketch and I put it on TikTok and it like blew up. and went quite viral on TikTok. But like it was so interesting because one of the reasons it went viral was because a lot of people thought this guy was real. Oh my and goodness! And so all these like anti-COVID sentiments coming from people—all these people who were like so angry with the COVID narrative—they were like, "You idiot! What is wrong? Stop getting vaccines! What the hell's wrong?" Like freaking out. And so like they're sharing it with friends. like, "Look at this frigging moron!" And so like that's where the reasons are crazy because people think they don't realize they get so entrenched. And here I am satirizing the whole situation. And their nervous system is plugged into this as if it's a real person. And they're actually getting stressed. They're getting energetically drained from it. They're sharing it around, being like, this is more proof of how stupid these people are when really it's a sketch. And so that was, that was so funny and such a funny example of how entrenched we can get in narratives. And when we're not self-regulating and, and doing digital detoxes and unplugging and getting deeply, deeply embodied and learning how to use the mind to watch the body and practicing that, because that's very much not what's happening. When you're online, um, you know, there's nothing to do with that. It's total disembodiment. You're really pulled out of it. I watch this with my children as an example. You know, my kids love video games and often I see how disembodied they are after video games and I will go and get them like big bear hugs and like tickle them and like I'll really work to get them back in their bodies. You know, I, I really, I, I watch their breath and their eyes change. Like, for example, my son, if, you know, if he, if he's really sort of disembodied from you know playing video games for an hour or whatever i'll notice like the way his eyes are moving and how shallow his breath are i can tell that he's a little bit out of his body um and so you know that's a chance for me to really get physical and really bring him back to his physical vehicle if we're not as adults engaged in something that does that for us in our offline life then we're going to carry all that dysregulation into the rest of our lives and so you know like for example if people are going to the gym like that's good that's that's a form of doing it but i would say take it further and spend your time at the gym using your mind to watch your body don't just listen to an audiobook at double speed and stay in that mental realm while you're working out watch your body working out practice using the mind to observe the body um i just i found this to be so healing and and now that we're you know very clearly in this war it's a form of warfare to constantly get embodied because you are a more difficult target if you are dominating the physical domain and regularly getting embodied. That's just like a straight up truth. And so you, you have to recognize it to me from that warfare perspective and arm yourself correctly.
0: Yeah. I just want to say real quickly that the reason your video went viral is a testament to your acting skills. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> No, but it's yes. it's true in, the, in you know, that regards. You see it often in satires where I immediately see the video I'm like this is fake and then I look at the or this is satire and I look at the comments and there's all these arguments going on and I'm like don't you realize this isn't real?
2: <laughs> it's amazing. It's, you know it's what's amazing? The, uh,
1: the other thing is like with this in, this cognitive entrenchment that you're talking about, is like, bro, many people just love to identify with narratives. They love to personalize these things. It gives them a sense of belonging against like a sense of being, you know, it's like, oh, I stand for this. This is what I represent. This is the group that I'm part of, you know, now all of a sudden I feel good because, you know, I have a position.
2: Yes. It's like, like it's, it's, it's really one of the most seductive things about modern life. And what's scary is how lost someone can get in that direction. Like how far away from knowing yourself and being embodied and like living a life that is like grounded in embodied truths, like you can stray so incredibly far just with like the modern design of life right now. Um, It's been set up in such a way to an extent, but also just naturally, like I said, from just the industrial revolution and how, how things unfolded since then for us, you can really, really wander super far in the other direction. And I think we want we want to promote a certain amount of balance in coming back to that. And I've encountered some interesting resistance in terms of uh, knowledge of self lately because um, you know I have a lot of Christians that follow my work and I've worked closely with a lot of Christian communities. And um, I just finished speaking at the Break Live conference in Sandpoint, Idaho. Uh, very, very Christian-focused community there. Really, really amazing people. Um, Izzy Gold is there doing just awesome work. I, I love the work that they're doing. But I have encountered in Christianity um, a concern about the study of knowledge of self and that um, this study of knowledge of self can go too far and that you you lose your relationship with God by being so focused on knowledge of self. And this is one of the Christian perspectives on like new age ideology, that it's so overly focused on the self that it's dangerous. Um And actually, I've come to find that some of that is true uh, from this neurology perspective in that the left hemisphere can get caught in becoming so hyper aware of the self that everything starts to lose meaning and that everything you get this sort of existential dilemma. And this is like very much what I think a lot of existentialism was about and like, you know, Kafka and Sartre and. This was a a time in human history when uh, people were looking at the self and gazing at the self so intensely that this became a kind of left hemisphere, uh, you know, moment of entrenchment where uh, the world it loses meaning because a lot of the meaning in the world is is very nebulous. It's like I said, it's in between. There's a lot of forms of meaning that are not explicit. There's a lot of forms of meaning that are intuitive and spiritual and metaphorical. So I think there is some truth that we can get too caught up in the study of the self to the extent that things become kind of freaky and meaningless. And so I, I am intrigued now by by what that balance looks like. Like, you know, I think human design has a very balanced view of it because it looks at the marriage of the personality in the vehicle and this idea of passenger awareness and you know, um, developing passenger consciousness and understanding that you are a passenger traveling in this vehicle. Um, you know, the, 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 the embodied sense of that, I think, is very helpful. But, you know, I, I, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by what is is going on now with the Christian response to everything that's going on and just the people who are not part of any sort of devout religious dogma that are seeking deep spiritual understanding and truth, that are also emerging away from the sort of the new age psyop. I, I don't know. That's an area that I, I'm very intrigued by. And I, I don't really have anywhere else to go with it, but it's just really been on my mind lately. And I'm watching how people are responding to all of this. And I wonder what kind of knowledge of self and what kind of spiritual practices are people able to retreat to that is balanced and that helps them you know, navigate all of this and use it to grow in a way that is balanced and nurturing.
1: Well, hopefully they're listening to this podcast.
2: Yeah, true. Yeah.
1: Man, my, my relationship with self is very much so interconnected to my relationship with reality. You know, Hermetic principles is the foundation of my framework of understanding, and it's as within, so without. You know, the relationship that I have with my internal world is reflective of the external world and, and vice versa. So, you know, I think without having that that grasp of what's happening outside of me, the, the study and exploration of self is very much one one-footed you know, it's as within, so without, it's as as above, so below. And if the inner work that I'm doing, you know, is detracting from the experience I'm having externally, then that would be a signpost that I'm going astray.
2: Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. It does make me think of Jordan Peterson telling me to clean up my room though. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I think, you know, that again, like I said earlier, I think, in the same way that covid was this massive ritual for awakening people you know like it was this sort of attack it was like the largest psyop in history but it was also exactly what humanity needed to awaken on a deeper level i really think that what's going on right now is similar in that we're we are being pushed into a much deeper level of awakening and that the the light is reaching corners of darkness you know the awareness. Awareness is being pushed to expand into spaces that it was not manifest. Um, more and more, that's that's my hope for the this. You know, the, the, this current escalation and the way that it's fractured and inverted all sorts of tribes and narratives. Uh, I think that's a really good thing. I think we needed that. We needed to see how entrenched we were. Even in our truth seeking communities, you know, Mm -hmm. in ideas of conservatism. I mean, Mm -hmm. the war machine flipping from the left pushing the war in Ukraine to the right pushing the war in Israel. I mean, like, that's fascinating. That's a fascinating thing to watch. I can't believe I'm seeing it. I'm like, wow, 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 this show is amazing.
1: Yeah. All all the people that were laughing. Yeah. Sorry. All the people that were (laughs) laughing at, you know, the US funding Zelensky in Ukraine are now cheering. For the U.S. funding (laughs) Netanyahu. It's crazy.
2: Is this a comedy sketch?
0: It just goes to show you the power of, like, groupthink, you know? How, like, your individual psyche can get swallowed up by the group mind. And your behavior comes from that place, you know? But like you said before, it is interesting because I think because all this inversion and because of, like you know, people that were aligned with one way. Now the people that they were aligned with are thinking other things. It's causing people to have to think like, wait, what's going on? I was aligned with BLM, but now they're, you know, so I I think over time I think people are going to start to kind of like maybe expand, hopefully some of their thinking around this. Imagine,
1: imagine, imagine like at a free Palestine rally, an extreme Muslim walking alongside a trans BLM activist, because now all of a sudden they fit into the same narrative together.
2: It's incredible. So that you know, literally, I was saying earlier how then there were neo-Marxists leading the counter-protest at the One Million March for Children protest. Those same neo-Marxists then went and literally set up a table at the pro-Palestine protest uh, to recruit people into Marxism, um, saying that you know this this recent these recent events, this is now is the time to become a Marxist, um, and that you know. That's really, that was one of the first things I noticed. I was like, very, very interesting. Interesting that that's what's happening at the same time. Because um, when the One Million March for Children protest was ongoing, Trudeau, he was very much aligned with the Marxists saying that this is hatred, this is anti-LGBTQ hate, this is anti-human rights. And then this new war comes along and now all of a sudden Trudeau is against the neo-Marxists And you know when he first came out, he was speaking very, very pro-Israel, all this stuff. And so you know, watching those allegiances sort of fall apart, um, it also makes me think of the you know the Chinese Communist Party. They put out a book called Unrestricted Warfare, and this is essentially this is by the people. It's by two colonels in the People's Liberation Army of China. You can get this book. It's very interesting because it's essentially their assessment of the birth of fifth generation warfare from the Chinese Communist perspective. And, uh, you know, they state that while war used to be about sort of alliances, you'd have these like global alliances and, you know, countries would ally with each other. And then you'd have like this one axis versus another axis. They state that, you know, one of the things that's happening in this new form of warfare is that it's all about self-interest, just rotating self-interests. And that all the different entities involved in every war now, you have to look at them all as self interest enti- self-interested entities. You can no longer consider these long-standing alliances as anything um, that is, you know, stable. Yeah. And in fact, the the sort of the way they talk about it is that, um, like in warfare, you have you always have three tiers of warfare. You have your um, your uh, uh, strategic objective, right? That's the top focus of the war. Your strategic objective, right? Win the war. And then under that, you have sort of primary strategic objectives. And then under that, you have the operations. And you have the operations that you have created to achieve your strategic objective. And then operations are made up of tactics. And so the way that the Chinese Communist Party looks at it is that while you may have uh your primary strategic objective that is the same for, let's say, the United States and Canada, the way they look at it is that the self-interested uh objective is at the same level now as the primary strategic objective that merges those entities. And so the countries and the entities and the groups that are you know, engaged in all these different forms of warfare all around us, there's that self-interested level that is now at the same level as the primary strategic objectives that used to create these alliances and warfare one of the reasons I think that's such an interesting insight is because when I look at the groups that we're up against, you know, these sort of satanic globalist, like Luciferian groups, uh, they're very hyper self-interested. That's part of their religion, right? They're all about that. And so when you look at what's going on right now, it's interesting to wonder how much self-interest is driving the alliances between these different elite groups and individuals. Um, and what if their self-interests misalign? to what extent will they betray each other you know that's another i think sort of uh, very seductive narrative that we're mm. up against an elite group that's very coherent that they're like one team always working together it's like us versus them no i think there's a deep amount of self-interest in in those groups and in those individuals and so it's also interesting to wonder what in the ongoing warfare that we're observing as we see this like struggle to install a new world order and the struggle to maintain human liberty and protect nation states what is playing out that has to do with self-interest and betrayal within the ranks of our enemy um you know and 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 how might that manifest in terms of narratives and events you know i, I don't know i don't know like uh, i like to consider that often because i know that there was a time when i was more likely to believe that there was a sort of unending alliance between this elite class and that they, they work in like perfect unity. And I really don't, I don't think that's true. And I don't think that's a a clear, a clear narrative to get stuck in. Yeah.
1: No, definitely something to consider, man. One thing that I love about living in Mexico is that this, this ideological subversion, this presence is just not here. It's, it's not here. Like you talk about how it manifests in my local community. Like it doesn't. You know, yes. like people here don't care, man. It's just, it's not present in the same way that it is like in more Western nations.
2: It's beautiful. I mean, yeah. I, I, and I think that's, that's true for a lot of people to a certain degree. When you compare the online outrage machine with your actual community, mm-hmm. there's so much just like peace that you can access and mm-hmm. just like daily life. And I have noticed this, you know, when I released Cut, I really noticed this, that there was, um, a lot of people who don't want to do anything about the issue. They just want to be a part of the online outrage machine. Mm-hmm. And that's it. They just want to go on, get triggered, be like, this is disgusting. I'm against this. These people should be in jail and get dysregulated. And that is the extent of what they are willing to do. I think there's like way, way, way too many people, um, who are caught in that and, um, really, Probably those people's communities could really use them dominating the physical domain. So, and they could use their communities. They, they could use, um, the sort of nurturing effect of how not outrageous their community likely is, you know, and I'm, I'm in Toronto, right? Like it's, it's very woke here. There are extreme manifestations of a lot of the nonsense, but also I have a very peaceful homeschool community. Mm-hmm. Uh, my kids you know that they, they go and play with this beautiful group of people that are um you know very very unique different groups you know like the this homeschool community was at one point led by a family with a same sex couple you know we have a family who's still masking sometimes in the park uh you know we're not like a whole bunch of right wing extremists educating our kids it's actually all over the map but to me that's that's beautiful because it's like even though There are these all this huge variety of like identities and political positions and whatever. We still just go and peacefully allow our kids to learn from each other and play and grow and just let it be that without inserting all the narrative warfare into it and ruining all these relationships and like getting triggered with each other. Like, if I were to reflect the online world into my homeschool community. It would erupt with so much disagreement and like chaos, but I'm, mm. t- I'm not going to do that. No, because, because it's not worth it in real life. It's not no, value. It it's isn't. not valuable in real life. It isn't. And so, how much value does it have as a ritual online? And how much are you letting that, you know, manipulate you? You know, these are really important questions to ask. And you know, I'm trying with everything that I make to try to make content and things that balance this this left brain, this right left brain right brain imbalance very much what I was trying to do with cut you know I tried to make it also very right brained very sort of poetic and artistic at the same time that as I was delivering factual information like I'm really uh, I'm, I'm working to do that as much as I can because I think yeah. um even in the most truthful communities we're so focused on getting this explicit mechanistic reductionist version of what's going on that we completely lose the other side of things and it really matters Like, what is implicit matters? What is murky and hard to know matters? What cannot be known matters? And how much space do you have in your body? Like, when we're speaking from a somatic nervous system point of view, how much actual space in your body do you have for not knowing? Because if your body's filled with knowings, filled with certainty, then you're actually stuck with that in your vehicle. And I think that the practice of not knowing is also the practice of regulating of becoming like empty of all this social engineering and that requires the work of embodiment that uncomfortable work of confronting what's in you and and letting go so you know in this course that I have coming out this is one of the practices i'm encouraging people to do you know start to go through the things you feel certain about in terms of what's going on in the world and notice what happens to your body when you just let go of that certainty you know when when you let it go when you, when you stop being so certain of that um There might be initial instability, but my experience has been that when I start to decondition myself from that perspective, I'm actually much more relaxed because I realized that I was upholding that certainty in a physical way. And, um, you know, makes me think of something that, that Osho once said. Um, he was very against belief. You know, Osho thought that belief was such an absurd tool because from his perspective, belief always requires disbelief. That you automatically, if you have a belief, there's some part of you that disbelieves and you have to try to push away the part of you that disbelieves and try to like uphold the part of you that believes. And he stated that um, the antidote to this is actually instead of using belief, use trust. And the only way to build trust and to embody trust in your life path, in your, you know, in, in the life that you're living is to move through doubt and you have to. Actually go through doubt as a kind of initiation to build trust. And so when you look at the way that people are processing, you know, like the warm middle in the Middle East, for example, how much doubt have you been initiated by to come to certain positions, certain points of truth or certainty? You know, I think that's a, a good way of checking in on your process because we need to move through stages of doubt. To come to places of trust and understanding, I think that's really important. And so, you know, I do look at it as a kind of initiation process. And I, you know, I, I I always admired that insight by Osho that that perhaps the process of moving through doubt to build trust is better than the struggle of maintaining a belief.
1: Yeah. No, that's that's not to say that like, you know, objectivity isn't needed and isn't isn't necessary. Um, you know, we do need to stake our flag in some some arenas you know certainly but i hear what you're saying man absolutely and just one one last point i want to make that i've been contemplating through this conversation we recently had a awesome episode with uh denny Katz, and we she talks about how language is a reality creation tool and how language can you know um manifest our reality so to speak and it's like We've been sitting here for like 90-odd minutes or whatever talking about how we're in this war. We're in this information warfare. There's war going on. We're in this you know, crisis, so to speak. Um, I'm just wondering on a broader macro level, this whole concept that we're being bombarded with that there's this war taking place. Even on a truthful level, we're in this information war. We're always fighting up against something. There's a battle that needs to be won. Um, What's that? What that's doing? to regulation and to our nervous systems. And like Erasmus, Erasmus and I often, you know, on this podcast discuss German New Medicine. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Um, but in German New Medicine, rather than someone, you know, being sick when they're presenting symptoms, they're actually in a, in a healing crisis. So what if on a macro level, we are we in a healing crisis? All this pain, all this suffering um, is coming up because ultimately there's a painful truth that needs to come to the surface in order to be healed. I'm just wondering if we shift that language from we're in this war to actually on some level, we're healing what that might do.
2: Yeah. The, it's interesting. I mean, I I have to go back to the research that I've been doing in terms of this, this relationship with the hemispheres because language, you know, one of the primary resources I've used to dive deep into this has been, I might have mentioned this in the last. Podcast um, has been Ian McGilchrist's book, The Master mm-hmm. and His Emissary. Um, because he, it's a, this massive book that goes through what has happened to the hemispheres of our brain throughout the development of, of history in Western culture. One of the things he points out is that language is originally, it, it, it actually is born out of embodiment and out of music. Um, that it comes from music and embodiment first. Um, Language as something to define mental constructs is something that came way, way, way later. And so our initial use of language, it was born out of our use of music. So first we had music and music was very much about embodiment. And like music, music is so powerful in the way that we are, Um, brought to embodiment by it that literally, um, when you're listening to a song, the neurons that are firing in your brain when you listen to that song are actually the same frequency as the song itself. Your brain plays the music at a frequential level through the firing of neurons. So, your brain plays music as you listen to it. So, I mean, we are so deeply deeply connected to music in this embodied way. And it was from this that language came forward. And actually, one of the examples that Ian McGilchrist uses to talk about this is um, this tribe. There's these tribe that that they live in different groups in these mountains. And one of the forms of language they use to communicate with each other is drumming. They drum throughout Mm -hmm. the mountains. Um, But it's not that they use drumming signals and then like the guy listens to what the drumming signal was and then he like translates that into language no the way that they communicate is they listen and the the drummer who's listening imagines what it feels like for the other drummer to be playing that and that's how he understands what's being said he 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 embodies the sense of what it feels like to play that rhythm and then he knows what's being communicated across the mountains it's through that sort of embodied sense. So it's interesting to note that language was first uh it was a natural form of embodiment. It came from our embodied sense of the world. Uh there's this experiment called the, it's called the Kiki Boo Boo experiment. Mm-hmm. And uh
1: You made you made that up, right.
2: No, it's just the, really epic. That sounds, place, that that's sounds the actual name. But that sounds fake. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, so here's the thing, is the 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 what they found was that when they like kiki and boo-boo were like these two sort of fake words they use in this experiment, but they asked people to describe kiki and boo-boo and like across the whole experiment, kiki was always something sharp and sort of pointy. And boo boo was always something, something sort of like bubbly and rounded. And they did this experiment in lots of different ways. They had, you know, lots of different, uh, ways of ensuring that the data was correct. It was a pretty high end study, but the point was that, um, language was initially born the way we formed words was out of our embodied experience of the world. So the way we experienced something, we made a sound that was in, in relation to how our body experienced that thing. So it came from embodiment, much like those drummers in the mountains. So this was the birth of language. This was its original purpose. It was an embodied expression of the world we were interpreting. But then again, as we sort of moved throughout history and things like the Industrial Revolution and Enlightenment occurred, language's role changed and it became something sort of separated from the embodiment and language became something that we could uh, just used to create concepts, and it could just all be totally disembodied social constructs. So language itself became somewhat disembodied, which I think is, you know, it's interesting now when you look at a lot of the the, the left wing ideologies that are trying to manipulate language, say that everything is a social construct and all we need to do is change language. When you look back and say, hmm, actually, the original words we had for a lot of these things were from embodiment. I think it plays to what you're saying is that. There are ways, there are embodied ways of of using language to interpret what is going on um, that I think might be healthier. And when you look at that German new medicine perspective, you know, is that not what's going on with us on a regular basis? Like I know that when I process something like this, like, you know, COVID or this war that's ongoing, I always come out the other side of it more healed, more aware. I've used it to grow and like to to become a better person if that is happening on our level could that also not like you're saying be what's happening on this macro level and that does that relates to this i think collective embodiment and this collective move towards hopefully the right hemisphere that we are moving through a kind of initiation into greater awareness of who and what we are and where we've been and what has happened and you're right like we should be using language that grounds us in that narrative, you could say, that meta-narrative, I -hmm, guess, is mm -hmm. what you would call it. I think that's a really healthy way to look at it. And probably, you know, right now in this moment, it makes me want to just make a bunch more content that's more grounded in that.
0: Yeah. Well, also too, if you think about most people are living in this conflict active state or sympathetic state. So on a macro level, if we take time before we make decisions and we get more in touch with like the nuance of our wave and we live more in this parasympathetic place, you know, what will that do to the world? You know? So again, it aligns again with like the two phase healing system from a GNM standpoint. So it's interesting to look at it in a macro level.
2: I think those things are ongoing all the time. Like the, the collective journey is, um, I mean, you know, from the human design perspective, I have a lot of collective circuitry. So I go there very naturally Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's something I I always return to is like, what is the collective story? How is the collective navigating this right now? You know, how might it help us to pull back and and look at this from a collective perspective? That's just always been healthy for me. And it's always something that I naturally want to offer people. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. if you're entrenched in the narratives of this ongoing war, well, what do you think it looks like to an alien watching one of those missiles launch off the earth and go somewhere else? just like sit for a minute and think about what the alien sees because they are not in our narratives they're just like floating in the Earth's atmosphere and they just see this thing launch and that goes and it blows up this other part and it's just I don't know like uh, to me retreating to those larger collective perspectives has always been medicinal um mm-hmm. and arguably if you looked at this from a human design perspective you could say that there's a lot of people who let they may have like a lot of tribal circuitry yeah uh, they may be pure individuals um and so they're just going to stick with their individual perspectives and that's you know that's valid as well right that what we need is a variety is the incredible variety of human designs that are already existing but as far yeah. as what i can offer i you know i do agree i agree that we 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 do have to rediscover these collective ways of seeing the human story so that we can um regulate and embody what's going on in in a different way um because You know, if you want to stay disembodied and dysregulated, then sure, it's endless materials. Go for it.
0: But again, journey into self. I think the self-awareness is required because what I see, I just see a lot of conditioning and and reactivity that's just going on in the world. So, it's like people can label the journey into the self as being like, oh... But it's required, you know, to build this self awareness so we our minds can observe all these things happening, and we can make decisions and react in a ways that more conducive to a, a healthier society, healthier relationships, healthier community, community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yeah, I think you know, really, like the journey into the self, in terms of embodiment, when you balance it with this idea of of, of not knowing of of. Mm-hmm of having not knowings, having space for not knowings, having a space for the unknown within you. I think that's really what balances it. I think that's one of the things that balances taking the study of the self too far and becoming so, so lost in that, that it it becomes detrimental. Um, There's
0: mystery. There's so much mystery in this world.
2: Yeah, You know, there's this
0: like, I mean, just go out in nature and observe and look, look up. Look around you and you're like, what the fuck? Sometimes I'm like, this is incredible. What is all this? You know, and I think, again, connecting to nature is a way to support, you know, going against this disembodied process when we're on our devices and we're around all these like hard material things.
2: Yes. Control. Yes. Because the the that, those hard material things, that modern design, that just tells the left hemisphere that it's right and that that's all there is to the world. And it just mm-hmm. reaffirms that. It's this loop. It's this reinforcing, you know, mechanism. Um, and and then also, again, I would say, always take it further if you can. If you're going into nature, use the mind to watch your body in nature. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, watch what your body does in nature. I had this so powerfully. When I went to Sandpoint, I don't know if you guys have ever been to Sandpoint. Idaho. I haven't. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. I hear what I hear. It completely blew me away. I didn't know what I was getting into. I I hadn't really looked it up. I was more focused on preparing for the conference, getting my materials ready. I had to rent a car and drive from the airport. And you drive, there's this little bridge to get into Sandpoint over a lake. And so you, all of a sudden, you come from these sort of mountainous roads and then you come onto this little two lane bridge that's going over like just a glass lake and it opens up into mountains all around you and it just like hit me right in my body it was so powerful and those times when it's very intense we've all had those times when it, you're impacted by nature and you're like wow and you're hit by the beauty but i think what's what's interesting to try to move towards is the more subtle moments mm-hmm. with nature is to be able to, to 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 use the mind to watch the body in those smaller moments of nature if all you have time for is like a little walk in the park you know i used to meditate with trees a lot um as a, there was a, a particular practice where i'd meditate with a tree every day for weeks smoking but them or seeing near them <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> so totally sober um, <laughs> i've had the other one as well but Um, this in particular was choosing a tree and meditating with one tree and staying with that tree. And I had all sorts of really crazy experiences with trees, uh, like just forms of communion with trees that were stunning. And, um, one of the techniques I used to use to get into this was to move from a small detail in the tree back to seeing the tree as a whole. And to just like gently go between the small detail and the tree as a whole. And I would like very softly do that for a time until I sort of this moment of communion naturally arose and I, my, my body would start to communicate with the tree of its own right. Um, you know, those are very powerful experiences for me. But I, I, I've been thinking about that practice lately a lot with all my research into the brain and, you know, wondering, wondering if if that's a, a a whole brain exercise of, you know, going into the small details of things and then pulling out and see them as a whole and going, moving back and forth. I used to teach people to do this. I used to run meditation classes, uh, open eye meditation classes, where I asked people, bring a beautiful item to the class and we're going to meditate on that item, you know, whatever item you want to bring, whether it's a flower or a crystal, whatever it is. And that was the practice we would engage in. Um, And I guess, you know, in a sense that sort of it relates to the theme that we're talking about here of like being in the study of the self and getting to know the self and then pulling back and seeing the collective story and then going back to working on the self, kind of like a, a meta version of that meditation practice I used to do so much. <laughs> mm.
0: You're inspiring me. We have like 300, 400 year old oaks on our property. So mm. um be great to to go you out know and what? commune with them.
2: If you're going to do it, if you can, if you can handle this, here's what I really recommend this was one of the most powerful experiences I had with meditation in my life. If you choose uh, a time in the morning and a time in the evening that you can meditate each day um, and and try to mirror it. So let's say it's like 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. And if you maintain that practice rigidly for two weeks, um, your meditation practice becomes embodied. And what I mean by that is um, your body starts meditating without you at those times a day because it gets plugged into your circadian rhythm. And so I had really incredible experiences with this. Once I would get into week two, there was a few times when um, I was a, a few minutes late for my meditation, but I would be doing something and I'd be like, "Oh my god!" And I would notice I would I would go into this deep meditative state. Like let's say I was just in the kitchen, like chopping some carrots, and I would suddenly become so deeply meditative my whole body would go into this state and i'd be like whoa why am i feeling this way and then be like oh it's because it's the meditation time mm, i've been maintaining that's wild um i try it if you if you're able it's a really really powerful experience and you know talk about embodiment that was like one of the one of the crazier times i've had an experience like that
1: yeah well, I mean, even existential psychology tells us, you know, to be considered healthy, we need to be connected to three layers of reality at the same time. And a mentor of ours, Michael talks about this often, which is the eigenwelt, you know, being with the self, the Mitwelt, being with the social constructs and the umwelt being connected to nature. And if any one of those levels are out of balance, then, you know, there, there's something that needs to be addressed. So I think it's very, very important what you guys have been sharing for sure.
2: Yeah, this is something that's touched on in my series, Superorganism, because Joseph, mm. I have a section with Joseph Chilton Pierce, and he talks about that, what's happened with that in terms of losing mothers being cut off from their infants in the modern world and mothers not staying with the infants like during infancy and not breastfeeding, and that um, there's actual parts of the brain structure that connect us to the earth as a larger matrix that are basically negatively affected when we're not actually physically with our mother during our most developmental years and mm-hmm. you know so I'm realizing that a lot of that research and that the content that I did years ago is really the same thing because Joseph Chilton Pierce talks about it as um, intelligence versus intellect and he says that you know we're in lost in a world of intellect and that the intellect only ever asks is it possible whereas intelligence asks is it necessary
1: I like that and
2: you know it's a I think a good simple way of boiling it down
1: yep Simon nice. man thank you brother I've love, loved this, having this conversation with you. And just in closing, I have confirmed that the Buba kiki experiment is legitimate. People can look into that. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting, actually. I'll ask you quickly, Erasmus, like, would you, out of Buba and kiki, which one would you identify as being a round shape and which one as being a sharp shape? Well, to be honest,
0: right when you said "boo boo" and "kinky kiki," I just thought of the word "kinky" when he said "kiki," and then I th- thought of a wound when you said "boo boo." But then, if there's other uh, <laughs> parameters with the experiment, uh, I would think, well, I mean, he already said that kiki
1: was more sharp, so it's oh, hard to I'm, oh, I'm biased yeah. now towards that. Yeah, um, but yeah, yeah. It makes sense, though. That's what comes <laughs> up in me naturally is that you know, kiki is that sharpness. Um, but yeah, very, very interesting.
0: Also, yeah. boo boo
1: has the O. It's in it's, it, it, it's, you know? it's boo bar. The letter
0: yes, letter O.
1: It's yeah. So
0: I would think more round just from that also, but oh, yeah,
1: no, yeah. <laughs> relevance. Yeah, Anyways. Of course. Simon, um, just in closing, man, how how can our audience, I guess, discover your work? I know Simon You've mentioned you've got this course coming out. Um
2: Yeah. So uh yeah, you can go to SimonNestler.com. That's also daughters of the west film.com sort of merge them into the same site. I have a video on demand platform there now. Where people can check out all of my content. So I've got, uh, you know, a few years of content on there now. So, uh, there is my, my documentary cut, Daughters of the West, um, which, you know, is a lot of what we're talking about. It takes things into a broader narrative, um, in terms of what demoralization of the Western world has done to girls specifically. Mm-hmm. Um you, you can watch my docu series Superorganism which explores the war on the family uh you know the occulted war on the family versus greater ideals of the family unit as a superorganism um nice. and then there's also the uh documentary collaboration I did with Adam Riva which is vague rules and you get that you can get that for free uh on the platform when you you rent or purchase any of those things so you can check that out um I have a workbook that um, you can get. Uh, if you sign up for my email, I'm going to be sending out this workbook. It's called Legacy Keepers, and it is to help parents study their children from the perspective of the hero's journey um, and to, to really encourage parents to see their child through the lens of the hero's journey so that you can see your child's unique struggle and the meaning of their unique struggle And then to use that information to create rites of passage and forms of initiation for your child throughout their development, because I really believe that this is a a form of stability that children are not getting that they need, that we need rites of passage to help children uh, embody the meaning of their struggle as they move through the difficult phases of life, especially adolescence. Um, And so I'm writing a larger book about legacy keepers and all my research that backs that up, but I am going to be offering the workbook through my email newsletter. And then yes, you can also uh, keep an eye out for this free course that I'm putting out. It's a three-module course, and that's going to be leading up to basically a masterclass I'm doing on everything I've talked about here in terms of the cognitive battlefield and navigating, you know, a lot of what's going on. Um, so I'm going to be offering that, and uh, people can find me most active on Instagram. And um, I think I think that's everything that I have going on right now. <laughs> I follow yeah. my Substack, I guess, as well.
0: Yeah. I love everything you put out and for everyone or new listeners that, you know, have come on after our first episode. Watch Cut. It's a great documentary. Uh, support Simon. Appreciate you, man. Appreciate everything you share and, uh,
1: you know, keep doing your thing. Yeah, thanks, for thanks. sure.
2: Really glad and, you guys are out there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And head head back and watch episode 119 as well, guys. Our first episode with Simon, a lot of context for what we've talked about here. Definitely. Simon, bro, you're a legend. I'm glad you're alive. I'm glad to know you. Um, and to everyone else, thanks for listening. Smoke and mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in a time, they think you're in a
2: delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward and